Hello, you're listening to Changemakers with me, Michael Heyman. Now, my guest today is Sir Max Hastings, the acclaimed historian, journalist and author. He has spent a lifetime on the front line of great events as a war and foreign correspondent, newspaper editor and as a columnist. His work has appeared in every British national newspaper, and as a modern historian, he has published some 26 books. The rumour from his old stomping ground, the Daily Telegraph, is that his secret is to get up at 5am and to write his first 2,000 words before breakfast. Little wonder that his best tip for life is the first Duke of Wellington's retrospective, I always did the business of the day on the day. Max, a great welcome to Changemakers, and if procrastination really is the thief of time, we better get on with it. Tell us all about this work ethic, born or made, if I may ask. I think partly inherited that I inherited two things from my mother. My mother told me when I was 21, she was the only one in the family who had any money. And when I was 21, she said, I've just made a new will, and you're not in it. And I looked a bit uh, amazed, and she said, well, I've decided that uh, your sister will... uh, um, is always going to need a bit of help. Um, and I've decided that um, you're not. Um, and at the time, I was pretty gutted because I was only 21. Um, but actually, it was a great thing because it meant one had no expectations. And my wife's always said, uh, she said, you were lucky. Uh, to hell with money. Uh, what you inherited from your mother was some brains and the discipline, the work ethic. And I've always thought it's it's nonsense to talk about I'm waiting for um, inspiration and uh, creative inspiration, all that sort of stuff. Uh, my view is you sit down at that screen or in my day when I started at that typewriter and you just do the business, whatever the business may be. And it is that discipline. And the other thing in respect, which I was terribly lucky, when I was young, and I was on the road. Uh, I traveled to 67 countries for newspapers and BBC. And Everybody else used to get absolutely boss-eyed in the evenings uh, in the bars. And the only reason I didn't was because I started feeling sick long before I got drunk. And one was um, 30% soberer than everybody else when when something significant happened. And it it sounds ridiculous, but it was a big help. It wasn't a moral decision not to be as drunk as everybody else. It was just that that was the only way I could do it. I mean, it 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 is this this life. I mean, I mean, having really sort of read about it, it's sort of like life of contrast. On the on the one hand, being this, you know, phenomenal risk taker as a as as a war correspondent on on very much on the front line. You know, some really evocative moments of walking into Port Stanley during the Falklands War, being even ahead of 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 the of, of the British troops, um, but also the security seeker. Um, somebody who wants to actually, as you just outlined there, sort of make sure that everything's safe. But how does that how does that relationship between, I, I guess, risk and safety work in, in terms of your life? When the story starts, none of us have any idea how it's going to turn out. And I think it's always nonsense. People talk nonsense about how being young is the best time of your life. I don't think that at all. I think when you're young, you have no confidence because you have no basis for confidence that you haven't done anything and nobody else has any reason to believe in you. So um, you're starting with a blank sheet of paper. And my father, who was also a writer, used to talk to me when I was 14 or 15, a bored schoolboy, about what he called the challenge of a blank sheet of paper. And I didn't really understand what he was talking about there. But I hugely admired my father and adored the Second World War, in which he was war correspondent of a famous magazine, Picture Post. And I thought life was about risk-taking and adventure, and I spent my sort of young days uh, parachuting, riding the crest to run, um, 
um, going to, I went to 11 wars. Um, and there came a moment when I grew up, and one of the things that made me grow up was I was a very close friend of a journalist who was very famous in his day, Nick Tomlin of the Sunday Times, who I idolized. And I was covering the Middle East War in 1973 um, when Nick turned up uh, in uh, Tel Aviv. And just before we set off for the Golan Heights, I said, what's an old man like you doing here? Uh, because Nick was 42, which then seemed to me incredibly old. And I was 28. I said, I've got to be here because I'm trying to make a reputation. You don't. Well, the next day he was killed on the Golan Heights by a rocket. I thought then very consciously, whatever I'm doing when I'm 42, I will not be doing this. And I hugely enjoyed uh, doing that stuff. And I was very lucky. Uh, yeah, one was able to make a little bit of a reputation. And one was able to get some great stories and have some great experiences. But um, when I was in my 30s, I wrote one or two very bad books when I was in my 20s. But then I moved on. And I think one of the things, we're talking about directions for life, I think it's terribly important to move on. Uh, at mm. different stages. And for instance, I mean, people, when I've been editor of the Telegraph for 10 years, which I never expected to do, and people said, why are you leaving? And they said, the paper's never been so good. And at that time, we were making sure loads of money. Well, the truth was, I won't quite say I ran out of ideas, but what I knew was that if I carried on, I thought I'd given it a pretty good shot. But if I went on, I'd be facing the same problems all over again. And um, this is actually, um, you're not, you tend not to be so good at dealing with the same problems a second time around. And I thought, um, I've probably given this my best shot and I want to go and do something else. And timing, timing mattered. Timing is critical. And um, there's a line of Bertrand Russell, the philosopher, which I half believe in. He says, the secrets of success in life are uh, to be in touch with the past and the future and to have a consistent purpose. Well, mm. I've had a consistent purpose, which is uh, to write and to make money. Um, but I've changed the way that one's approached that over the years. And I think it's terribly important to change your game. And, for example, I've often, I'm asked constantly, even now, to comment about newspapers and about um, the Daily Telegraph or the Evening Standard, which I listed. And I won't do it because... I had some answers in the 1980s and 1990s, which are absolutely not relevant now. Things have moved on completely. Mm. I think it's terribly important when you've done something, whether you've done it successfully or unsuccessfully, move on. Okay, so if, you're, if your life story is one of moving on, I mean, you know, you, you use the, the, the phrase about uh, war reporting that you grew out of it. So, so the story of growth in your life has been quite quite an interesting one, hasn't it? I, I guess in terms of the person that was reading Winston Churchill's My Early Life, buying into the romanticism of, of adventure, then the the newspaper editor that 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 looked every every step born to be the boss, the editor's seat. Um then also the person that's moved on to be the modern historian, you know, acclaimed books around around the world. What 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 is if you were to look at that as a, a series of your own life chapters? What do you think the learnings have been at each each one of those segments? Well, the learnings. Um, I mean, when people interviewers often ask me why I've written this book or that book, and I always reply rather cynically but reasonably truthfully for the money. Now, I hope that I've never written a book that I didn't believe in and I wasn't interested in, and I didn't have something. I think I had something new to say, but. Um, 
I've, I've also, all the time, I've been looking at the market. And one of the things that uh, some people are naive about writers, um, they write what they want to write without thinking too much about what other people might want to read. Now, my view is that the book business is just the same as any other business. It involves the same discipline, the same study of the market, and the same looking at um, my mother, who a very clever woman with whom I had a very difficult relationship, when she was very old, about 95. And I went to see her in a care home one day and said, why do you go on writing these boring books about the Second World War? Why don't you do some worthwhile work and write about the Crusades or whatever? And I said, well, Mother, um, at the moment, you know, I, I usually get the top of the bestseller list. And if I read about the Crusades, um, I, I wouldn't even register on the radar. And she said, oh, well, if you didn't have such an extravagant lifestyle, then you could do some decent work. And I went home and said to my wife, I'm going to go back and kill her, and no jury will convict because I'll clearly keep provocation. Um, but um, it, it's, it's a question I'm not saying, and I never would say, my way is the right way. All I'm saying is you can't be surprised if your books don't sell, if you don't think very carefully ahead of time, um, about what other people might want to read. Do you, but do you think it's more than that? I mean, you know, I mean, I've I've read a lot of your books. I mean, and and I agree with Anthony Beaver's point about how deeply moving they are. The, the fact that you brought out humanity in these stories in a very, very, I mean, in a way, not only in a very different way to some of your predecessors, but I think you've set the bar for for everyone to come. I mean, it's, it's got to be more than just spotting the market opportunity. Does it speak to an internal passion as well about the human experience? Oh, yes. um, and I, I've learned well the various things. One thing I think is enormously important is understanding nuances, that the truth about almost everything lies somewhere in the middle, which is one reason I think we have cause to be so frightened about what's happened to our politics on both sides of the Atlantic, where um, we seem um, to have become prisoners of fanatics of right and left. And those of us who belong instinctively in the middle ground uh, um, find ourselves disenfranchised. And yet the truth, one of the things all historians I respect agree about is that the truth usually lies in the middle. It lies in nuances. And um, if you um, believe also the other thing too, you must never believe, if you see written on the jacket of a book, this is the definitive biography or the definitive history, throw it in the bin because there ain't no such animal. But all we're all doing is we're making, we're making a guess, a grope, a truth. Um, but I think the other thing too, a very common mistake among writers is they impose the values of our own time, the 21st century, on completely mm. different circumstances. And, I mean, I've just been writing a book at the moment, about which I've just finished, it's coming out in the spring, about a, a huge naval battle in the Mediterranean in, in August 1942 called Operation Pedestal, which involved the British committed four aircraft carriers, two battleships, six cruisers, and the British lost a lot of ships in that in that whole business. And I close my eyes and I think things through. And one of the things that's most moving, comedians attempted today to laugh at the word duty. And yet so many of those kids aged 18, 19 or 20 who were doing that stuff uh, um, in extreme peril um, in the midst of the Mediterranean, August 1942, duty was something very real to them. And so actually for a lot of them was God. But it's amazing mm. um, how many of them took their religion very seriously. And it was a very real force in their lives. And if you're going to write well 
about at any other time, whether it's the Victorians or whether it's about the Second World War or anything else, you have to think into that time. And one thing I'm very impatient about now, about a lot of the debates going on at the moment, the culture wars, so-called, whether it's about race or about gender or about whatever, I can say without hesitation, we are now trying to do stuff better than people did it in the past, that an awful lot of terrible things were done in the past, which it is absolutely right that we should face up to, including uh, the appalling treatment of women for for many centuries. What we cannot do is unmake um, the past. We can't change the past. And it's childish. It's the sort of language in the nursery to pretend that we can. Um, we have to face up to the past. But um, to sort of vaguely pretend that we can make stuff all right from uh, from that time, um, uh, I don't think this is grown up. Well, I mean, well, that, that I guess brings us quite neatly on onto onto Winston Churchill, who, who you know is, is one of your 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 great heroes, um, possibly the the finest um, Englishman in your in your view, and actually. Um, you know, you finished off on on finest years with with a very balanced assessment of him, um, both in terms of what he achieved and and, and what he didn't. But when when you see that the debate about him today, um, the, the sort of the the calls for the removal of statues, things like that, I mean, does, does this had as as a sort of as a historian that has studied him, how how has that sort of played with you? I'm very impatient of it. I think it often reflects ignorance. Because I have no hesitation in saying that Churchill was a racist. I could point you to many quotes, um, many of which I used um, in my book, um, in which Churchill said appalling things about other races. His treatment of India was was a terrible blot on his record. And in the 1944-45, the Bengal famine, in which at least a million people died, Churchill bore a real responsibility for that. But when you're um, assessing Churchill's record, you have to set that huge fault in the balance against his other services, not merely to Britain, but to mankind. And one thing that's very striking is many of his own Indian contemporaries, including some great nationalist leaders who were imprisoned while Churchill was prime minister for their support for the independence movement, they were willing to accept in their day that Churchill's contribution to mankind made it possible to forgive um, these terrible mistakes. It, mm. It's childish in our own time to say we won't forgive those mistakes. Um, you've only got to look at Churchill's uh, enormous contribution. I personally believe that if Churchill hadn't existed, Britain probably would have um, uh, had a government that uh, would have made some sort of deal with Hitler with disastrous consequences. I do think that very often it's true. Tolstoy believed that um, history is made by events, and uh, he didn't really believe in the great man theory of, uh, of history. I do rather believe in the great man. I think there are moments when uh, an individual can, can, can change things in an extraordinary fashion. And I think that Churchill was one of those who did change events, and mm. mankind owes him a great debt. Well, I, th- I think to your, to your point about the role there of, of you know, Great people in history is, is 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 partly because I think you're a true student of leadership. I mean, a lot of your books are not only about about what happened, but they're about the mindsets of the people that took the decisions to actually make things happen. I mean, when you look at um, 
how we're facing perhaps our generation's greatest challenge in in coronavirus in in terms of massive social and economic changes that we're facing here in you know a brand new decade of of, of this 21st century i mean what 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 do you sort of draw on in terms of the the study of leaders of the past to sort of indicate what what we what we might have or indeed what we're missing today leadership involves being willing to tell your people um, things they don't want to hear. This is essential to leadership. And one reason I was skeptical about Boris Johnson's fitness to be prime minister and I'm even more skeptical today is because Boris is an instinctively, um, he's an entertainer. He is one of life's natural butlin redcoats who wants to stand up in front of a, a crowd and have a more chair. And he wants to say the things that will make them cheer, as he said the other day, when he says, when he tell, tells the British people that this is all going to be over by Christmas. Well, do you know any responsible person who thinks this is all going to be over by Christmas? I don't. And this is Merkel. If you contrast this with Germany's Angela Merkel, we don't need to go to the leaders of the past. Angela Merkel, whose reputation had suffered with her own people for her decision in 2015 to admit a million migrants. Um, today, her reputation is once again sky high because she has handled this ghastly crisis brilliantly because she told her people the truth. But competence as well, I, I guess. I mean, but, but I mean, you know, just going back to what you've just said there about the Prime Minister, I mean, others might be listening and say, yes, but he inspires, you know, in the same way that other past leaders have inspired in terms of getting people to, you know, go beyond the breach to do to do the things that need to be done in times of great difficulty. I don't see any evidence Boris Johnson's inspired anyone to do anything in this crisis. But um, um, I think it's been a, a sad business that I, I personally think. I see fear in his eyes. I think this is a man, this is long before he got ill. I think this is a man who signed up thinking being prime minister was going to be one thing and found out it's something completely different. And I think he's failed wretchedly the test of leadership, which is to get out there in front. There's a feeling leadership's also about grip. Leadership is making people feel that somebody's in charge. You can't get it all right. But another example from Angela Merkel, um, Merkel freely admitted all the stuff that the scientists, she said what the scientists did know and what they did not know. She said what she knew and what she didn't. I think this government's standing would be far higher with the British people today if they'd been up front all the way along about what they didn't know and what they did. Um, and if, if you tried, I, I suggested, I wrote somewhere, that one ought to go back to the tradition of Franklin Roosevelt's fireside chats with the American people. When he makes the American, he made the American people feel in the 1930s that he was confiding in them, that he was trusting in them. And I don't think, I think most people, the British people have come to have very low expectations of their government. They don't feel governments have, have, have on the whole looked after them very well in the last uh, 20 years. Is, is that just here or is that, or is that a phenomenon of leadership around the world, do you think? I mean, has it been found to be wanting? This I year? personally think that uh, one of the scariest lessons of, of this crisis is that most Western governments come out of this far less well than the Asian governments. That uh, I don't mean one chooses China as a role model for anything, uh, um, except for the fact that, that the, as far as the handling of the crisis goes, that um, most Asian countries seem to have come out of this, uh, especially South Korea, but also Vietnam and other countries have handled it, have managed it much better than Western countries. And 
I think this is very alarming because it suggests on a much, not just about CB19, we know that we face a historic challenge with the transfer of wealth from the West, West to East, which under any leadership, this, is, this process is going to continue. But somehow we have to, for the sake of the next generation, the West has got to get an act mm. together. Well, I just want to talk about that generational point, because, you know, as well as the virus, it has come the social and economic challenges. And we've seen massive civil liberties de uh, demonstrations in, in the Black Lives Matters marches. I interviewed um, Kerry Kennedy, who is the, the daughter of Robert, Kerr, former Senator Robert um, F. Kennedy. And she, she saw direct parallels between the late 60s, 1968, and and today in terms of this kind of pressure cooker that, that was building and not being properly addressed. As a historian that has actually studied that year, did, is, that a, is that a year you would, you would draw parallels for to 2020? I would draw some. I was in the United States in, in 67, 68. Um, I met a lot of the players, including Bobby Kennedy. Um, I was obviously a very young reporter in those days. Um, but at that time, I was very young, and I thought um, the United States was falling to pieces, and I wrote a very bad young man's book, um, of which a reviewer in the Sunday Times said uh, um, most, if not all, of the merits of this book derived from the author's youth and innocence. And it was perfectly true that um, I made the mistake in those days of thinking that America was in such chaos and the one reporting the riots and so on, that I thought it was doomed to fall apart. I've since come to have enormous faith in what I call the American genius. Um, I think America's path for um, um, self-revival is quite extraordinary. And when you look at all the stuff that's going on, I would not necessarily take a long bet um, against the United States and on China in all this situation. I think there are many reasons for strategic fears, militarily strategic fears, which is another day's work. But as far as the ability of a society to succeed, um, I have almost unlimited faith in um, mm. America's power to revival. I'm much less sure. Is it, is it an entrepreneurial? Is it an entrepreneurial power? I think one of the most important things. One's only got to look at what goes on in technology in the United States to see their commitment to the future. One reason I'm much more alarmed about Britain is our besetting vices. Uh, one of them is nostalgia. Now, I say this who writes books about the Second World War, but the idea that we can all go on standing on the White Cliffs of Dover, saying, singing will always be in England, and a lot of people in Britain still seem to believe that, including some of our politicians. And unless we can do better than this, unless we can look to the future, uh, rather than the past. And I think one of the most frightening things about Britain's predicament today, we have got to do a reset where, um, and says he who sells books about the Second World War, I would still say we're going to do a reset. We realize that what we did or didn't do in the Second World War has nothing at all to do with um, um, creating a viable future. And at the moment, I want to hear much more about Britain politicians and, and, and not about the past. Was the 45 generation nostalgic in the same way? Were they different? One thing that was enormously different, I knew a lot of the 45 generation of politicians. Uh, um, Roy Jenkins, for instance, was my close friend and I knew I knew them all. People like Dennis Healy uh, and uh, um, Tony Cross and all the rest of it. Now, one thing about all that generation, whichever party they were in the House of Commons, and whether they were clever people or not so clever or whatever, they all went into politics with a clear idea about what sort of Britain they wanted to create. 
And I think this was enormously important and impressive. And it doesn't, for this conversation, matter whether their particular version was the, was the right version or the wrong version. They had a vision. Now, most politicians are there today. They want to be prime minister or they want to be um, um, chancellor or home secretary or this, that, and the other. I am not satisfied that they have a credible vision about where they want to take Britain. And the idea that Brexit, I mean, some people talk about Brexit, everybody eat it. Well, um, uh, I want somebody to tell me what precisely, where we're going to... I've never forgotten going to a conference about, uh, um, oh, 10 years ago now, um, an Anglo-German conference, which the chairman of Mercedes made the keynote speech. And in his very polite speech, he said, we all very much hope that Britain will not leave uh, the EU. But he said, I venture to say that if you do, um, he said, I think in this era of giant trading blocks, you are going to find it very cold out there. And that's what's worried me all along and continues to worry me to this day. The confidence mm. of leadership, nostalgia, and um, no clear idea of how we're going to cope out there. I think we are going to find it pretty damn cold out there. So, so that's cold. But I mean, if is there anything that, that that draws you to? I mean, what what makes you optimistic and positive? I mean, I mean, are there are there things, or or, do you, or is this just a uniquely bleak? I'm an optimist because I believe passionately in the in the human spirit. Britain is still a wonderful country in which to live. I mean, I'd far rather live here than in the United States. I'm always being asked to go and teach at American universities. As much as I love them, I'll go for a day, but I'm not going to go for a loop. And we can we can do better. I think what I really want to see in Britain, we do need a new generation of leaders who have that sense of a vision for the future of Britain rather than just a vision for their own careers. Mm. I mean, and just just to finish off, I mean, I, I always think about, um, I think the first book of yours that I read was Editor. And I always remember you finished it with um, a quote from Neil Collins, who he's, when you were complaining, he said, it beats working. I mean, I wonder, going back to your work ethic, whether actually you just don't look at it as work, that actually it's just what you love That's doing. That's true. My father, when he talked to, me, talked to me about the challenge of a blank sheet of paper in those days, and it's still true now that I'm still, uh, I should be 75 at Christmas, but I still, every morning, when I turn on the screen, I look at that blank screen, and the challenge of filling it is still something tremendously exciting. And... So I'm very lucky. I'm one of the most fortunate people in the world because I do something I love and that people pay me money for. Um, but other people are not so lucky. But I worry my generation don't matter anymore. We don't matter in the context of CV19. I'm sure there'll be lots that will disagree with it. <laughs> it's, it's the kids who matter. And it's the next generation all my, all my fears and hopes are for. Mm. Thank you very much, Max, for joining me there on, on Changemakers. And I think that... That, that message there about, about the next generation, about what happens next. I mean, certainly from the eye of the historian in terms of what it takes to deliver perhaps this generation's finest hour. And my thanks, therefore, to Sir Mac Hastings for joining me on, on Changemakers. Please do join me next time. 